Welcome to Cookbook Club. We're home cooks from Portland, Oregon. Every month we choose a cookbook, make lots of recipes from it, and then get together to share some of the dishes we made. We talk about what worked, what didn't, and decide whether this is a cookbook we can't live without. I'm Sarah Gray. And I'm Renee Wilkinson. This month, we're cooking from Six Seasons by Joshua McFadden with Martha Holmberg. This cookbook celebrates vegetables in all their forms and seasons from the vegetable whisperer, chef Joshua McFadden. Hailing from the Midwest, McFadden attended culinary school and worked at a number of high-profile New York City restaurants before discovering the magic of vegetables when he took a job managing a farm in Maine. The book was published in 2017. The following year, it was the recipient of a James Beard Award. The recipes in this book are organized into six micro-seasons, spring, early summer, midsummer, late summer, fall, and winter. And within each micro-season, McFadden features a few vegetables typically found at their peak, with a handful of recipes for each one. Recently, there has been some controversy around McFadden, and we'll touch on that towards the end of this episode. But for now, let's talk about the book, which we both spent a lot of time with, and we can't wait to dig into this one. I do love this book. It's really big. First of all, it has tons of recipes in it. It's so big that we actually had to break it up into two different cookbook club events. That's right. We've had two cookbook clubs to cover it in two different seasons. Yeah. So the first season we did, we blended the spring with early summer. I think it was maybe, you know, springish time of year, late, yeah, I, late spring. I think you're right. Yeah. And then the second cookbook club event we did in early fall and we blended late summer with the fall recipes. And, and it, it almost seemed like two different cookbooks yeah, to look at the meal definitely. because of that seasonal division, which is pretty cool. Yeah. We should also talk about how many recipes are in this cookbook. For people who haven't seen it before, there are, I'm guessing, over 200 recipes in this cookbook. So you're talking about six different seasons, and then there are recipes per season, and then add three, five, six recipes for each of those uh, vegetables. And that ends up being a massive tome of a cookbook. It's huge. I feel like it makes it a really useful thing for when you go to the farmer's market, come back with whatever looked good and need to find a recipe to use what you have. I find that the season that I cook from the least out of this cookbook is actually midsummer. And it's because that's the time of year when I don't feel like cooking as much, or I'm just kind of throwing together really simple things. So the seasons I cook from the most, to your point about the farmer's market, are the things like, what do I do with rutabaga in winter? Or like the turnips that I got from our fall CSA. So they're kind of like the shoulder seasons where there are these vegetables that we are always a little bit scratching our head with like, what do you do with celery root? Right. You know, or I've already made a bazillion carrot recipes and I need something new. This cookbook is great for that. He really reinvents the way that you would cook with vegetables, or at least the way that I intuitively would cook with vegetables. Right. Now, Renee, you are a big gardener, um, an urban farmer, we would say. And uh, how how do you think that frames your perspective on this book? I mean, just knowing that there's six seasons and the way that he breaks them down feels so intuitive to me. The fact that he has two different seasons where he features carrot recipes. There's a early summer carrot recipe section. And those are the overwintering carrots that actually get sweeter over the winter. And then he has a separate set of recipes for fall carrots, which are the ones that grow through the warm season. They're still delicious, but they just have a different flavor profile. So the fact that he's sensitive to that and breaks out those recipes is something that I think would resonate with anyone who's a gardener and a home cook. 
So I love that about this book. That kind of blew my mind that carrots taste different at different times of year. Yeah, that had not occurred to me before as a not big gardener. I gardener a little, but, um, you know, usually I just go to the farmer's market to buy my veggies. And so, um, yeah, that was mind blowing. I think even if you're not someone who's a home gardener or an urban farmer or a modern homesteader, if you're someone who just appreciates local food and is going to the farmer's market or participating in a CSA, especially when you go to the farmer's market, you pick and choose. That's true. And Mm -hmm. it turns out that not that many people are like choosing celery root, for example, to bring home that week. But when you're buying into a CSA, which is community supported agriculture for people who don't know what that means, it means that you're committing to a farm for a particular season to give them a set amount of money every week or every other week to have a share of whatever they're harvesting. And so that's all of these a wider range of vegetables usually than you would pick yourself at the farmer's market. Definitely. And when we have had a CSA in the past, it's always been a little bit of, there's always something in there that's a bit of a mystery. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I haven't cooked this before or what do I do with it? Yeah. And for me with kids at home, I feel like I typically want them to get used to the flavors of produce on their own. Like I want them to know and appreciate what a carrot tastes like or Swiss chard or collard greens or whatever. And so I don't always add a whole lot of additional flavors to that. And so this cookbook was kind of a gift to me in a way where I can, you know, stack and layer flavors together and, you know, give my kids a more elevated vegetable cooking experience, but also for myself too, that someone else is doing the work for me to inspire my home cooking in terms of just vegetables instead of it always the focus being on the meat or the protein and then just having simple sides. Right. I like how this book really has a lot of rich flavors just from those things that we would normally put in the sides category. That's very true. And you can definitely make a full meal out of them. I think that is a trick to this cookbook that you have to figure out though. Yeah. Because a lot of the recipes do take a lot of time to make. Like Joshua McFadden is a chef. It's a chef cookbook. It's a chef written cookbook. (laughs) And so those recipes are not like easy weeknight meal under 20 minutes with like five ingredients. We're not written with the busy mother (laughs) in mind. No, he's not thinking about like working parents trying to feed a table full of hungry children at six o'clock. Absolutely. Um, I'll say that I still cook from this on weeknights all the time because I put all that effort into one of his recipes. And then I round it out with something super simple like sausages or flatbreads or whatever protein thing that can be kind of an add-on ingredient. Yeah. So that way I'm not making this main thing as like a side dish. This is the main dish. Sure. That's really smart. So I'm not sure what it says about me that my favorite recipe out of this vegetable cookbook is a dessert. Oh, (laughs) but can we talk about the carrot pie? (laughs) Definitely. It's so good. It's one of my favorites. Um, It's one of those late season carrot recipes. Um, and it's sort of like a custard pie, like a pumpkin pie, but it's mm-hmm. made with carrots. And it's really simple. It has sort of a like a caramel sauce that you blend up with with boiled carrots to make this really delicious um, and some eggs also to mm-hmm. make it set up. I have served it to people before who were not sure what to make of it at all. And he calls for a he has a walnut pie crust. So yummy. Um I really, really like it. And it's also the toughest um, crust to work with that I've ever encountered. (laughs) Do you think it's worth it? I do. Okay. I think it's really good. But my trick is you have to roll it out between two sheets of parchment. Because if you try to roll it out on a plain surface, it's not going to work. Yeah. I think I rolled it out four times. I was so frustrated the first time I did it. Um, And it would just fall to pieces. It's super tender. But as a result, the flavor is phenomenal. And I've also made that walnut crust with pecans as well. Okay. And it works. But you've got to do it between the two sheets of 
of parchment for sure because it's so so like flaky it just like will fall apart in your hands mm-hmm. yeah i i like the concept of the nut crust on this um i have also made it and thankfully you had already made it so i got to use your tip because i <laughs> yeah. were you the one who brought it to our cookbook yeah, club yeah, event it was, the one who it was it. delicious you so won good. cookbook club actually with this carrot <laughs> I think pie I maybe won that one yeah um, not that we have a winner but it just seems like every time we get together for cookbook club there's some <laughs> recipe that's like, like knocks blows our minds yeah. yeah so this one blew our mind so i tried to make the walnut crust i did make it uh i used your tip with the rolling it between parchment paper which again is i feel like something that is maybe shows that this is a chef written cookbook yeah. i mean it's not 100% chef written cookbook because he has a writer who worked on this cookbook also with him, which I think helped a lot make it more accessible and easy to use for home cooks. But sometimes I find that chef cookbooks either leave out a few steps or they're not super concise in the way that they're written. And your tip about rolling it between parchment paper and just noting that this is a super finicky crust to work with was very helpful. Otherwise, I would have also been like tearing my hair out trying to make it. Right. I did get it to get fit in the pan and it was delicious. But I have never made that cake again with or that pie recipe with the nut crust. I right. just use Alice Waters pie crust, which just is go my classic. go-to. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. that works better for my family because we have dietary restrictions in our family. And so it keeps the protein content lower, which works for my kid with PKU to um, just have it with a regular pie crust and not a nut crust. That's really smart. Yeah. So I, th- I think it's still worth making for that if you have to modify it. Yeah. Um, did you bring it to Thanksgiving? Is that where I you made did. this? I brought it to Thanksgiving. Um, it was a mixed review with my family, Okay, (laughs) but I would say there's some members of my family who are not super adventurous eaters. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. I think it's delicious. I don't think it's too overly carroty. It's not like you're bringing a hippie pie where people are like, this doesn't dessert. Like it still tastes like a delicious custardy dessert. Sugar and eggs in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a rich full dessert. Since we're on the topic of desserts, one of the other... He doesn't have a lot of dessert recipes in this cookbook, but in the same season, which I think is winter. Yeah. Uh, maybe yours, the carrot pie was in fall. fall or yeah. Fall, yeah. And I think the parsnip date and hazelnut loaf cake with lemon glaze, I think that is in the winter section. And I love that recipe. I don't know that I, I... You know, I don't think that a lot of people would maybe count that as dessert. It might be more... It's more like a, you know, banana bread, like sure. loaf pan style cake. But it's really delicious, and I think it's a wonderful celebration of winter flavors. It sounds delicious. I've never tried it. It's a good one. I think it's totally worth making. It's nice to serve it to people who kind of appreciate the nuanced flavor of parsnips, which means it's not something that I make my family, (laughs) but it's something that I bring to share with other people. Yeah. Um, But that's a nice recipe that feels very celebratory of all of those wonderful winter ingredients. I like that. Going on to sort of the other seasonal side of things, um, I love a few of the intro recipes in that sort of early sort of springtime. Um, One that I know both of us really have enjoyed is the raw asparagus salad with breadcrumbs, walnuts, and mint. It's so delicious. It is um, amazing. I had never eaten raw asparagus before I made this recipe. The only time I've eaten raw asparagus, honestly, is when I'm out picking asparagus from our garden and it is so great raw, but I never prepare it for other people like that. I just graze outside on it. My kids might graze outside on it. But something about just the way that he layers those flavors are so delicious. And I believe someone brought that to Cookbook Club also for our first time we did this cookbook when it was the spring, um, early summer section. And it blew all of our minds. It was really, really good. Yeah. I would also like to point out that... So there are breadcrumbs in this recipe, 
And I also find that a lot of chef cookbooks and not just chef cookbooks, some other cookbooks too, but often I think chef cookbooks have these like secret combination, their like superpower ingredients and breadcrumbs are definitely Joshua McFadden's superpower ingredient to for him. Yeah. They're in like half of the recipes I think in this cookbook have breadcrumbs. And that's something that I didn't really think about as like a thing to put in salads, but it really does add just enough texture to make it feel meatier. I'm not like a big salad eater in general because I feel like I need more food than that. (laughs) Um, But these, these recipes I think stick with you longer because they have breadcrumbs because they have nuts in them. Right. It doesn't take away from the produce, you know, which is asparagus, but uh, it makes it a little bit of a heftier salad, which I like. Absolutely. Um, I also love the lamb meatballs with the couscous and English peas, which is in the peas section. Um, Embarrassingly, I've never made it with the fresh peas. I always make it with frozen peas, but um, it's so good. It's a complete meal. So it's like a lamb meatball and the meatballs have mint in them. It's a favorite meatball of mine. Um, And then you do this couscous with a... um, like little chopped up um, dried apricots in it, which my kids can't get enough of. Um, And there's peas in it as well and herbs. It's really, really yummy. That sounds good. So it has some savory sweet combination going on in it. Exactly. And is it is Israeli couscous the bigger couscous? It is. But this calls for you can use either kind. So usually I just use the regular, like the smaller kind, Mm -hmm. um, which is what is pictured in the recipe. But he says you can use the Israeli couscous as well. You just cook it slightly differently. Okay. We're going to take a short break to catch our breath. We'll be right back. Did you know we have an Instagram account? That's a great place to see what we're cooking and to get reminders when we release a new episode. Find us at Cookbook Club Show and make sure to tag us in your posts as you cook along with us each month. Talking about the pictures in these yeah. cookbook, we have a member of cookbook club, Eliz, who's on our show occasionally. She is really good at pointing out when the recipe does not match the picture. And Absolutely. that's something that comes up in this book a lot, I would say. The photography is gorgeous, but sometimes the end product doesn't look like it's not that recipe. Absolutely. You know, like you're supposed you like cook something down and in the picture it, it's fresh and it's not cooked so there are little things like that that Absolutely. don't always line up perfectly I, well i think two examples of that that really drive me crazy are uh, i made this one recipe the braised beef with lots and lots of onions and you braise the beef with lots and lots of onions until the onions are gone but in the picture <laughs> there's this beautiful pile of onions on top and they're cooked but they're still there like if you follow the instructions to braise this beef, you have annihilated the onions. They're gone. Um, so that's a little bit of an embellishment. Okay. That's, I think I, I made that note in my cookbook, actually, from your experience on that recipe, because it's if good to know going into it. If you think you're going to get a mouthful of onions, you're wrong. Yeah. Like, they've been annihilated into the broth at that point, because you braised that for a super long time. Um, I did not love that recipe, by the way. I was expecting more onions, I think. So it was maybe a little mismatch of expectations. Okay. Um, the other one is the beet salad, which I really love this beet salad. It's a beet slaw with pistachios and raisins. And you make this pistachio butter mm-hmm. that goes into... Um, it's so good, because the pistachio butter has this, like, creaminess to it. And then there's a, I think it's like red wine vinegar or something. So it's like this great layered flavor. It's a great salad. But I grated the beets on a box grater and they don't look anything like this picture. No. Because these are finely julienned in the picture. 
sometimes the photography really sells a recipe. And I think that that's the case with this recipe. The recipe is great on its own, but I probably would not have made it unless I saw that picture and saw how beautiful it is. He's using like rainbow beets and it's so colorful. The beets are so vibrant. Yeah, it looks inc- like if someone served that to me at a restaurant, it would I would be so excited to eat that dish. And looking again at the recipe, it does say grate the beets on the large holes of a box grater or cut into a fine julienne. Yeah. So this is a fine julienne, but like, I don't have time for that shit. No, no one does. No, no one does. Unless you unless work you at a restaurant. A professional chef. Yeah. And you have a team of people in your restaurant helping you make food for a big crowd and then you're going to eat some of it at the end of the night. Absolutely. Um, but yeah. the pistachio butter is to die for. I do really love that salad, even though mine has also come out not looking like that because I don't have the bandwidth to julienne like that many beets. Right. Um, I love that recipe. It is a bunch of raw beets, right? Yeah. So that's a little bit like intense for my body it's to eat intense. that much. So um, I like that recipe, but I don't know that I would make that recipe again because... My yeah. body was overwhelmed by that yeah. salad. It's a lot of raw beets. I recently recommended this recipe to my mom who's trying to eat more raw beets because mm-hmm. she's trying to get, I think, her cholesterol. There's a heart thing. Sorry, mom. I forgot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, she's working on, so, like, it's like decreasing plaque in her arteries or something. Oh, okay. And she read somewhere that eating raw beets would help with that. So I recommended this recipe to her. And she's like, I've made it four times in the last week. So wow. she's going for it on the raw okay. beets. But I agree. It is a little intense. Yeah. The pistachio butter is delicious. He has a section at the beginning of the cookbook all about sauces and accompaniments, and it includes recipes for flatbread. And There's some really solid little bits in there. Yeah, that's a good section on its own that we haven't really even talked about, but the pistachio butter recipe is in that beginning section, and he references it from this recipe. Does he go through the steps here, or does he just say... A half a cup of pistachio yeah, butter. Yeah, he just calls for a pistachio butter. Yeah. So it's in the in that first section. So that's not... It's a pet peeve of mine, which I think he handles really well in this cookbook by being really upfront about that in the recipe because the recipes are fairly short, which is nice. They're easy to read and get through. But they can be deceptive. But yeah, that's what I don't like. I don't like it in a in a often a chef written cookbook where you get to like the fourth paragraph and they're like... Now make the pistachio butter. See page one thirty two. You know I want right. that in the ingredient list up front, it's so I like know a recipe within a recipe yeah, that it's like a nesting doll of a recipe. Yeah, you have to be care- you have to be careful on this one. <laughs> I feel like there's a, a few gotchas that way in this book. Yeah, he also has a spiced green sauce that he uses in a lot of the recipes that I have cooked out of this cookbook, and that's another like nesting doll recipe where you have to go and read that at the beginning of the section. It requires a whole bunch of fresh herbs and it is really delicious, but it requires some effort and some planning. It's a whole second recipe. Yeah. Crazy. How about the celery salad with the dates, almonds, and parmigiano? I lived off of that in the wintertime. so good. It is so good. And normally I think of celery as an ingredient. I mean, it's just the way that I cook. Like I use celery along with my carrots and my onions to like start a recipe. It's not the kind of thing that gets the spotlight ever. No. And then when you end up with a ton of it because you're growing it and it's coming out of your ears (laughs) or you have a CSA and you're just bringing it home every week, you run out of things to do with it. And this recipe solved that problem for me. I never have a time in my life now where I have a whole bunch of celery and I'm like, oh God, what are we going to do this time? But for years I was like, you know, chopping it up and freezing it because I couldn't use it fast enough. Same. Like I'll just save this for stock, I guess. Yeah. But this recipe 
I am delighted when I get a whole bunch of celery now because it's just so good. It's raw celery. I use the, my mandolin slicer. I don't have a fancy mandolin. You're I have brave. a real just cheap one. And I watch my fingers because I worked in I lost food. edges of fingers to my mandolin and I still own it, but I don't ever use oh, it really? anymore. I'm too scared. So I worked in food service before in my past life and have learned that lesson about how they to watch so the mandolin. Dangerous. They're really, really really sharp. Yeah. Like I don't let my I'm really careful with where I even store it in the kitchen because I don't want my partner or the kids or something like putting things away and accidentally getting into it. So it's in a box in like a high cupboard. And when I use it, I'm very careful about how I load it in the dishwasher. So when someone takes it out of the dishwasher later, they're not going to be surprised by it. So you definitely it's a piece of equipment you have to be careful with. But it saves so much time for recipes like this. I bet it's more delicious, too, if it's yeah. really, really thin. Yes. I have done it where I've hand, hand sliced it as That's thin as I, I can. Do it. I don't think it turns out as good as it does on the mandolin. I'm sure you're right. It might even be worth owning a mandolin just so you can just make the celery make salad celery recipe. Salad. Yeah. With the dates and the almonds, like the almonds gives it enough bite. The Parmesan in it gives it enough umami. And the dates give it the slightly sweet note where it just feels like... And then the sauce or the dressing itself has a lot of lemon in it, if I'm remembering It has correctly. a lot of so acid. Yeah. That like acid pop and the date sweet mm-hmm. and the almond crunch is so good. Yeah. I mean, there have been, I have to talk about the recipe that I cook from the most, even yeah. though I love that celery salad, the kale salad that started it all. That's the name of the recipe this in this book. staple in your house. It is worth owning this cookbook just for that salad recipe. And isn't that also the recipe that kicked off this cookbook? I think he became kind of known as like a chef to watch because of that recipe. Okay. That recipe is more method, I think, than it is firm recipe, and you will experience that when you read the recipe because like in the ingredient list i think it says olive oil is an ingredient but it doesn't tell you how much and then you like get into the recipe and then it specifies add a half or a quarter cup of oil at this point in the recipe and then season everything to adjust so it's like you start with half a lemon you start with you know the amount of breadcrumbs and the amount of parmesan and a bunch of kale like what does that look like you know are you who's who's putting the bunch together that can vary quite a bit if you're buying it from a grocery store versus a gourmet grocery store versus a farmer's market your own garden so all of that is a little bit loosey-goosey but stick with it the recipe is worth it i've made it before in the beginning of my days of making that kale salad where it just turned out fine and it was good and then i made it where it was phenomenal and you have to keep adjusting the seasoning and tasting it until it's phenomenal. And then you know that you've reached the right point with it. So tinker with the recipe. Don't just follow his instructions and be like, okay, well, I guess this is it. I find that I have to massage the kale depending on what kind of kale it is and how fresh it is so that you kind of break down the fiber of the kale, um, adjust the garlic, adjust all those things. And then it's amazing. And I can eat the entire bunch of kale in like one sitting because that recipe is so good. So yummy. I would say the breadcrumbs matter in that recipe also. And I'm a sourdough baker. So I've taken Melissa's advice from Cookbook Club. And anytime I'm kind of at the end of the sourdough loaf and nobody's excited about eating it anymore, that I make it into breadcrumbs or croutons using his method in the cookbook. And then you save it for the salad. And I save it for the salad and it's delicious. And you can, I have that as lunch just by itself or maybe with like an egg because we have chickens. And so we always have eggs. Or um, if you have like a rotisserie chicken because you're like, hitting the easy button for dinner <laughs> and you make the kale salad that started it all, which takes like 15 minutes. That's a delicious dinner right there. Sounds so good. Yeah. Ugh. I have made the salad before, but I haven't perfected it. So you've inspired me to keep working on it. Yeah. It's worth the effort. The kale sauce with any noodle is a fun one. Um, speaking of kale, 
uh, it's really interesting. It's really, really simple. It's basically you just make a kale sauce, which is mostly kale mm-hmm. um, and sort of seasoned. And then you throw it on spaghetti, which is kind of fun and simple and I think is a kid favorite, maybe. Okay. With the pasta in there. Um, it does sort of remind me of that recipe in Julia Tertian's newest cookbook, Simply Julia, which she it's called Lubov's Green Spaghetti. And it looks the same, uh, but hers has a lot more dairy in it. Okay. So if you're looking for more of like a pure kale flavor, mm-hmm. um, I think it's good. I don't think it's like the best thing I've ever made, but my kids really enjoyed it. Okay. Um, and it's a good way to sneak a lot of sneak a lot of veggies in. My kids did not enjoy that recipe. <laughs> okay. Um, I made it and I felt like it wasn't flavorful enough. So I felt have like you it, made the Julia Tertian one with the cream cheese in it. I have not because okay. her recipes are so dairy heavy. They're very heavy on dairy. And I mean, at least in this latest cookbook, they're very dairy heavy. Absolutely. And I have a dairy intolerance. And so it's like I can eat some of it, but then it's like not really worth it. Right. So that I kinda, makes total sense. Yeah. And also adding dairy to anything kind of always makes it taste better. Uh, that's true. <laughs> so it's like I know that it's there. I want the things that are going to make it taste really great without, without like, that using that as kind of a crutch. Absolutely. He also has some really unique flavor combinations that I wanted to talk about because one of the first recipes I made from this cookbook were grilled radishes with dates, apples, and radish tops. Yum. Radishes are one of those like early spring crops. They're great for kids actually because they you plant them and they're ready like 28 days later, which is one of the fastest crops that you can grow. Amazing. Yeah, so we plant a lot of radishes at home and at our school garden. But how many ways can you eat radishes? Like it gets really boring after a while to eat them raw, and they get spicy. You know, if they get too big, so grilling them or just roasting them takes out that spicy flavor and it makes them a little bit more buttery in texture. And this recipe is interesting because I just never would have ever imagined that I would be making a salad designed around a radish. Usually it's like a garnish, you know, in salad recipes. And so this recipe is really great because he's kind of taking that classic balance of things that have a little bit of acid in the dressing, some sweetness from like the apples and the dates, along with the perfectly prepared radish and mixing it all together. So it's a pretty good, pretty good dish. It's Not a great one, combo. Yeah. I wouldn't like go out of my way to design a dinner around it. But if you have radishes coming out of your ears, that's a great recipe to try. Another great beet recipe, since we were talking about beets, he has a roasted beets with avocado and sunflower seeds, which is a wonderfully dreamy combination. Yum. I never would have thought of that on my own. Um, sometimes in these recipes, they're not perfectly seasonal. So the asparagus salad, for example, usually asparagus in like early spring mint is not also available in my garden at that time of year. And so the beets and avocado is kind of another example of that, where I don't necessarily think that those two things occur at the same season, but we don't have access to local avocados. So really they're available all season where we live. Yeah. Um, but the creaminess of the avocado with the softness of those like roasted beets is really fabulous. Some of the summertime recipes that I've cooked from a lot and we've had at Cookbook Club that were delicious were grilled eggplant with tomatoes, torn croutons, and lots of herbs. Mm. That's like a celebration of summer. Seriously. I mean, it was so good and you really didn't want to eat anything else other than that. I could eat that all summer long. Um, He also has a couple unique tomato recipes. So if you're kind of stuck in a rut with like always preparing produce sort of the same way, this is a great cookbook to inspire that. So the tomato recipe that I'm thinking of is one that has melon and hot chilies and honey. And it's really, really delicious. What a great combo. Yeah. 
that was a good combo. And he also has a recipe in there that rounds out tomatoes into more of a fuller meal. It's an Israeli spiced tomato with yogurt sauce and chickpeas. So you, when you look through the sections, there are recipes where they're kind of more designed as a side dish and then other recipes that are designed more as a full meal. Renee, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Dropcloth Samplers is a line of hand-drawn embroidery samplers printed and ready for you to jump in and start stitching right away. Each pattern is hand-drawn by Rebecca Ringquist in her Portland, Oregon studio and printed for you to embroider with your own color and thread choices, like coloring book pages, but for embroidery. You can find Dropcloth Samplers on Etsy or on Instagram at Dropcloth. I cook from this most in the shoulder season. So there's a Brussels sprout recipe in here with lemons, anchovies, walnuts, and pecorino, which is phenomenal. That is just so Joshua McFadden, like that particular combination of things. Like I feel like he's great at nailing that like acid, umami, like Mm -hmm. creamy, crunchy combination of flavors. And the Brussels sprouts are raw in that recipe, which is another thing that I appreciate. He did that in the asparagus recipe too, but Sometimes you don't always need to futz with the produce. Like sometimes it really is just perfectly enjoyed raw. And so the Brussels sprout recipe, I think, is a version of that where he just um, it really makes the vegetables the star in each of these recipes. Like yeah, you're not cooking them into oblivion. Mm-hmm. And then there's a textural difference too when you're eating it, which is really important. Um, I've made so many different things from this cookbook. Another one that I really love that will always have like a fondness in my heart for is this. Um, Faro and roasted carrot salad with apricots, pistachios, and whipped ricotta. Oh my gosh. I'm not a big salad person, but this salad is really a full meal. And I was, um, every year I go down, I drive a couple hours outside of Portland to the same farm to help process turkeys with this farmer in preparation for Thanksgiving. And during the pandemic, you know, he's relying on me to come do it. And so I was <laughs> staring down the barrel of what was going to be kind of a very sad, lonely trip of driving my myself, not hanging out with any of my friends, not having the sort of celebratory experience. So I wanted to bring something with me that was going to last for the whole trip. I wasn't going to have to go to the store to get any ingredients. I could make it at home and take it with me and it would keep, but it would also be really nourishing. And this salad was such a wonderful gift for that trip. It's really you know, aside from just being in this landscape with this farmer, this was the only other good thing about that trip was this salad. And so every time I eat it, I'm just, it felt like someone was taking care of me, you know, eating. That's so nice. Yeah. So I layered it with the honey whipped ricotta on the bottom of this glass Tupperware dish and then layered in the farro and then, you know, the softer things up on top. Oh, that's smart. So the texture didn't suffer over a couple of days. Yeah. It always felt fresh. I was there for maybe 48 hours and I ate it all weekend and it was wonderful. Yum. I also took that parsnip loaf with me, which I was going to share with a friend. And then I wasn't able to see that friend because of the pandemic. So I ate it all myself and it was fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) This cookbook really set the theme for that trip for me. And it it felt like a, a warm spot in an otherwise very like sad holiday season where we weren't seeing anybody and sharing things with people. Yeah, that was a tough moment in the last year. One of the other things to sort of loop around to the fact that this is a chef written cookbook Mm -hmm. um, is that some of the recipes don't yield a lot. (laughs) So I think you have to be really careful um, to look at how much they're going to make and sort of adjust accordingly. 
in feeding a family, sometimes it's like you make something and you're like, well, this isn't going to be enough food even for two of us. Yeah. So I, I don't know how they landed on those, but it, yeah, and I think it's a little bit inconsistent too, because some of them do yield quite a bit and some of them don't. I also feel like I don't have a lot of time and space in my life to like waste. I still think that this cookbook is worth it. But I think when you make the recipes, you have to make it low stakes the first time. Absolutely. Like you have enough things to round out the meal in case it doesn't make enough food. Or, you know, he doesn't have time estimates on here, which is a busy working parent. I appreciate when somebody's like, this meal is going to take 45 minutes. Those are very helpful. You know, so that's not in here. So some and, and especially since there are some like nesting doll parts of the recipes uh, where you get into it and you're like, oh, crap, I have to make a whole other recipe now to finish this dish. <laughs> it's good to make it when you have time. You know, you're not going to feel like rushed and have to make dinner in 15 minutes. And also you have stuff in the fridge that you could pull out in case it doesn't make enough of something. That's really smart. Absolutely. Should we talk about how, what the book looks like? Looks like? Definitely. I love the um, illustrations of the vegetables throughout the book. I think they're really gorgeous. Mm -hmm. um, and then also the spine of the book. Sorry, I guess it's not the spine of the book. It's the edges of the pages um, are color coded by season, which is really fun. So it's got kind of like a rainbow effect on the pages. If you don't know what you're having for dinner that week and you're doing some meal planning, I will often flip through this book by color and be like, okay, well, it's spring. So let's just look at the spring section and see if something, see if something inspiring. jumps out and inspires you. I, I think there's like a certain mood that they're setting with the way that they've done the photography in the book. They're trying to keep it very tied to farms. So, you know, it's okay if things look a little rustic. It's still a very professionally photographed book, but it's not free of any hint that it came from a farm. You Absolutely. Know, they have a little bit of that touch on it. Do we want to talk about Joshua McFadden? There's been some recent controversy. We're, we're in Portland, Oregon, and Joshua McFadden was co-owner of a few different restaurants in Portland. In 2020, McFadden became the subject of allegations of abusive behavior in his restaurants, including misogyny, racism, homophobia, and more, um, along with his co-owner of his restaurant group. And each of them had their own response to that. There was something going on in the summer of 2020 in Portland where there was sort of an open invitation from someone within the restaurant community of let's talk about restaurant culture, you know, kind how of part toxic of, that can be. Yeah. I mean, this is all building off of the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter movement. And let's turn all of this upside down so we can see it so and address take a look at it. Yeah. This toxic workplace culture. So McFadden and his restaurant partner each had their response to that. And McFadden was criticized for being for not really owning it and not really acknowledging that, yes, I'm sorry, here's the apology. I'm going to work on being a better person. So right. he he didn't really do that. He kind of skirted wasn't around it. It wasn't a very it. satisfying response. Yeah, it wasn't a very satisfying response. Since that time, he and his co-owner have separated ways and they're no longer jointly owning these restaurants. Um, and COVID has just, you know, kind of wrecked havoc on a lot of the restaurant industry and restaurants have shuttered related to just the pandemic possibly related to these different allegations that have been swirling in the Portland restaurant community. So that's a little bit disappointing for me um, personally with McFadden because I, I, we all make mistakes. We all have moments where we can learn and grow. And it would have been nice if he had just sort of owned that a yeah. bit more. I think he has since tried to backpedal a little bit or smooth it over and make it seem like he's taking accountability <laughs> for it. But I think he is one of many people in the Portland restaurant community and then just the restaurant world in general 
that is having a reckoning right now with their behavior and their role in fostering these communities that are really oppressive to people who are maybe not white, straight males. Absolutely. So how has that affected the way that you use and see this cookbook or has it? I recommend this book with an asterisk. I think that a lot of the cookbooks that we've cooked from, from cookbook club and a lot of the content that we consume outside of cookbook club is often dominated by white men. And I think that over the last few years, we're having more awareness of that. And so I, it's not that I don't want to recommend a cookbook by another white man, but (laughs) it's important to be aware that this is a guy who maybe has contributed in some ways to the ongoing oppression of people who are not white straight men breaking into this industry or thriving in this restaurant industry and, you know, cookbook club world. For sure. And I think it is something we try to think about as a cookbook club. Who are we cooking from? Whose voices are we listening to? Um, Those are important pieces to us. So I think it's a solid cookbook, but it does leave a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. Who do you think this cookbook is a good fit for? Not a beginning cook. It's complicated. A lot of these recipes take time. I mean, maybe if you're a beginning cook and you don't have children. <laughs> yeah. Because it just t- it just takes a lot of time. But I think if you've got some chops and you're ready to really dive into this seasonality of these vegetables, then I think it's awesome. I mean, it's so good. It's also a great book to go to when you want to make something to wow people. You know, if you want to take a dish to Thanksgiving or, I mean, summer gathering or something, something yeah. really impressive. To a party, if you're For hosting sure. people over at your house and entertaining. I think if you're someone who already is behind the seasonal eating locavore movement, you know, if you're someone who's an urban farmer or buys from a CSA, goes to the farmer's market, knows who Alice Waters is, sure. knows who Michael Pollan is and is into that, this, this is, is a for great you. cookbook for you. Yeah. I think even if you are, that would be the only... If you are a beginning cook, but you also really subscribe to this local food movement um, and want to eat seasonally and feel really passionate about that, then you have the energy to become a better cook cooking from this. this. But I agree that if you're just a new cook in general who's like kind of interested in those things, but not super interested in those things, this is not a great book for you. It's going to seem too complicated. Yeah. I have tried to gift this book to people who are urban farmer friends who I think know how to find their way around a kitchen, but could use some inspiration, sure. like updating their repertoire of how they make things. Because you get into a rut, like so much of gardening is annual. You know, you do the same thing at a certain time of year. It's good to spice that up with new ways of preparing these vegetables that maybe you're just in your pattern of doing. So many things that I have to say about this cookbook. This could be like a five-hour <laughs> cookbook club episode. So if you ever see me on the street and you want me to like engage me in conversation, ask me what ask I think about, about Six Seasons. <laughs> There's no shortage of things that I have to say about it. (laughs) So I'm curious, after all these uh, hits and misses and things that we love about the book and things that maybe fell a little bit flat for us, does this book earn a spot on your cookbook shelf, Sarah? It does. I'll be honest that I haven't cooked out of it as much recently, but this is a year when I don't have a CSA. And in a year where I have a CSA, it's a much bigger thing that I pull from. Um, So yeah, it earns a spot. It has well earned its spot on my cookbook shelf because I still pull from it all the time. I feel like I have cooked from this book a lot, and I think I haven't cooked half of the recipes in here yet, and I'm still excited to cook those. That's something that I think is a sign of a good cookbook when you've lived with it for a long time, use it on a regular basis, 
And yet you still have recipes in there that you're excited to get to. Still feels new. Yeah. So I, I do really, really love this cookbook. Well, next month we will be cooking from the Indian Instant Pot by Urvashi Pitri. It's a book full of simple recipes for delicious Indian dishes that are made simple by the Instant Pot. We've cooked a lot from this one and we're excited to chat about it. Cook along with us between now and then. Just tag us on Instagram at Cookbook Club Show or send us a voice memo or a comment at cookbookclubshow at gmail.com. You can find us online at cookbookclub.show. Remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss the next one. And leave us a review to help other home cooks find us too. Until next time. Bye. Bye.